Welcome to PreachingChrist.org, the preaching ministry of Father Patrick Malone, Vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church in Milwaukee. If you have any questions about the Bible or the Christian life, contact us at Patrick at PreachingChrist.org. Well, as I opened up the lectionary in preparation for uh, this in preparation for today, and I looked at the gospel reading, I thought to myself, how can I get a sermon out of basically a narrative about Jesus moving from Egypt to Nazareth? And then I thought about preaching, just ignoring the gospel lesson this week, and preaching out of Isaiah 61, but I thought, no, I'm going to Uh, do the hard work and try to figure out what does the Lord have for us out of this gospel passage. And I prayed and I meditated and I read, read over and over. And the Lord did uh, give me a few uh, insights. And I hope that you'll find them uh, edifying. First of all, we notice in the passage where it says, um, in verse 22, And when he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Um, That's a difficult passage because there is no biblical quote in the Old Testament that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So once you hit that brick wall, then you think again, maybe I should preach on the Isaiah 61 passage. Because who wants to go in front of the congregation and say, the quote in the scripture isn't found in scripture. And so I read numerous commentaries and journal articles to help us figure out why this is there. And just because um, the just because Matthew says that this is a quote from a prophet doesn't mean a prophet didn't say it. It just means that it perhaps is not recorded in Scripture, and that there is an oral tradition of a prophet saying this, or perhaps there was a modern day understanding, modern as contemporary for Matthew. Uh, a contemporary understanding that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from Nazareth. But as I studied, there are a few verses that, that suggest this quote. And you can find them in Numbers 6.13, Judges 13.5, 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, Psalm 69, verse 9, and Amos 2, uh, 10 through 12. And basically those uh, five passages would lead one to, to perhaps come to the conclusion that yes, the Messiah, will, two things will happen. That he will be like a Nazarene in that he has a solemn vow on his head. Secondly, that he is dedicated in a unique way to God. 
And then thirdly, that he will not be glamorous and popular in the eyes of the leadership of Israel and in the eyes of many of the population of Israel. That he will be, as Isaiah says, despised and rejected of men. But nevertheless, Matthew puts here that the Messiah, that specifically Jesus, will be called a Nazarene. And the Nazarite vows dedicate one to God in a very unique way. And they are many times, because they cannot participate in the full life of Israel, considered despised and rejected. But as I pondered on this verse more, there were a couple of very important insights that I think we should meditate on together. First of all, and I've brought this up before, that Jesus' early life, that him fulfilling certain prophecies of the Old Testament, wasn't completely under his control. That many of the prophecies about his early life were under the control of his parents. And so God had to choose very specific people, namely Mary and Joseph, knowing how devout and faithful that they were, so that Jesus would be able to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies. And so when God spoke to Joseph, the head of the household, he bypassed Mary in this example, he, had, he asked Joseph first to take the child to Egypt. Why did he ask Joseph to take the child to Egypt? Well, because Herod was about to slaughter every child in that village. This is, when you think about it, that is odd. Why didn't just God thwart Herod's plan to kill every child? Why didn't he just take that thought out of Herod's mind or thwart the soldiers on their way to Bethlehem to kill those children? Why did he allow the children to die? Why did he give this dream to Joseph that he had to leave? Why did he tell the wise men that he had to leave? And then why does he have a tell Joseph in a dream that you now can go back, but you have to wait because there's this other leader, so go to this town. Sometimes, from our perspective, and this is very crucial, sometimes God's working seems very confusing from our perspective. But it is exactly the way God wants to work it out. If it were me, I would have just thwarted Herod. Why do these innocent children need to die? Thwarted the soldiers. Why is Herod commanding that these soldiers kill innocent children and therefore bring condemnation upon the soldiers? Just wipe away the whole event out of history. But for some reason, God thought that this was the right way to allow Herod's anger 
to cause such mayhem and disaster. And then to use a dream to lead Joseph to take his child eventually to Nazareth. That whole event of being exiled in Egypt and being led back to Nazareth seems like a wasted effort. And I don't know about you, but I have had events in my life, churches that I've pastored, moves that our family has made, and I think to myself, that was a complete waste of time. I spent three years in this circuit going out to Kansas, then going to New Jersey, and then finding myself back in Ohio. Why didn't I just stay in Ohio the first place? But God uses those things in ways that we could perhaps never imagine, in ways that we may never know until we get to heaven. So sometimes God's providence, God's controlling of creation and history, seems confusing to us, but it is exactly what God wants to happen. And he uses things, historical events, specific people, unusual instances, to prove our mettle and to bring us closer to him. So I guess my first point is, God mysteriously uses human events to work out his redemptive plan. God uses mysteriously human events in history to work out his redemptive plan. Secondly, if we look at this passage of Scripture, it demonstrates the genuine humanity of Jesus. Jesus' life was in danger. In the early days of the church, there was a heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, the Gnostics believed that Jesus was not really a man. He looked like a man. If you stood next to him, it would appear that he was a man. But he was really a phantom. He was really a ghost. He wasn't really human. He didn't have flesh and blood because flesh and blood is evil. It just appeared that he was a man, that he was a human being. And this story, this narrative in Matthew's gospel demonstrates the vital necessity of the humanity of Jesus. He was a human being. He was specifically a male. And it took the desire, the will, the cooperation of Joseph and Mary to protect Jesus during these early, early days. If you're a phantom, you don't need to be breastfed. If you're a phantom, it doesn't matter if the soldiers come to chop off the head of Jesus because he really doesn't have a head. Phantoms don't have heads. If he's a phantom, then he doesn't have to flee to Egypt and come back again. Jesus was a real human being. He had flesh and blood, and I think we forget this. 
as followers of Jesus. We have so magnified his glory that we forget that Mary had to change his diaper. That Mary had to wipe up the spit up that Jesus had as a baby. That Jesus burped. That he vomited on Mary or Joseph's shoulder. That he cried. That he got viruses. That he got sick. That he fell down and scraped his knees. Jesus was a real, live, human person. And that is vital for our salvation. Because he became one of us. That we could become like him. So God uses providence, historical events that are mysterious to bring out his plan of redemption. Secondly, Jesus Christ is an actual human being. And this is emphasized every week in our Nicene Creed. He is a man. He is a man conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And thirdly, that Jesus, that it took Mary and Joseph to be faithful parents to get him back to Nazareth as a stepping stone for Jesus' actual ministry. Imagine if Jesus were raised by some of the parents that we see today. Where he's got a screen in front of his face all the time. Where the child is never taught no. Where there's no discipline. Where he doesn't really care what little Joshua does. But God picked Mary and Joseph very specifically so that their house would be in order. And brothers and sisters... As Christians, this is going to be one of the most important tools of witness for the world as we see our culture crumbling apart. That Christian families are trying to stay in order. That a mom is a mom, a dad is a dad, and a child is a child. Hebrews 5, verse 8, teaches us that Jesus was not a robot, but that he, quote-unquote, learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience. Luke 2, 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with both God and man. He needed parents that would teach Jesus how to obey. Because as he matured as a a boy into manhood, he would then take on the monstrous yoke of obeying his father. And this is fundamental to our salvation, that the job of the parent is to teach the child to obey. And the job of the parent is to train the children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. And Mary and Joseph, full of grace, were the perfect parents 
to accomplish that. When Joseph had the dream, Joseph told Mary, we need to pack up and we're going back to Israel and we're going to this little town of Nazareth. It was the first steps that Jesus was also taking to fulfill the eternal plan of redemption. As godly parents, Joseph and Mary taught Jesus how to die to himself. That is not a popular notion. It's not even on the radar of parenting in the year 2020. Dying to self? That is antithetical to good old Americanism. We are not taught or trained to sacrifice. Maybe some athletes are taught that way. But it takes sacrifice. It takes training to be able to say no to yourself. No, I'm not going to do that. No, that is wrong. No, it is not good for me. No, it is not good for my family. No, it is not good for my wife. And as Joseph and Mary moved from Egypt to Nazareth, they helped set their son on a path that would eventually lead to the cross. Not merely the cross, but the cross and the grave. A path of obedience, which led to his death, but really to his life. For Jesus, his Father's will was always the only way. The cross was his only destination. And redemption was his only plan. And I look at that example in the life of Jesus, and I compare it to my life. The Father's will is not my only choice. Sometimes I want to do what I want to do. And that way always leads to death. For Jesus, only focusing on the sovereign plan of God and the details of the plan of salvation was the only path that he wanted or did, in fact, take. As we think of this short little passage, some six verses, and we look at Joseph's and Mary's willingness to jump up, pack everything up, and say, yes, Lord, we will go, is an amazing example that we should all follow. Am I ordering my life so that saying yes, Lord, is easy? Am I ordering my household so that saying yes, Lord, will become easier and easier for my children? Or am I training my children that sometimes you obey the Lord and sometimes you don't?
it depends on which is most convenient for you on that day. So on this day, as a Reformed Catholic, I'm thankful for Mary. I'm thankful for Joseph and the incredible obedience that they had. Because without their obedience, the obedience of Christ would have been incredibly difficult for him to continue his way to the cross. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.